Well, welcome to Round the Table with Christian Concern. Um, it's great to be with you today, and I'm delighted to have a special guest, um, Beth Peltler, who is Chief Executive of the One Truth Project. Um, joining us today on her special subject, Islam, um, and also Andrea Williams, Chief Executive of Christian Concern. And we are talking about terrorism, been in the news, hasn't it? Terrorism, the Islam connection. Um, and um, we obviously had a um, uh, attempted terrorist attack on Sunday, um, Remembrance Day over in Liverpool. And uh, if you read the newspaper headlines on Monday, my goodness, you'd have thought there was a Christian connection here, wouldn't you? Um, they all said uh, terrorist was a Christian convert um, on Monday morning. Andrea, what was your reaction to that when you saw that on Monday morning? Well, to be honest, I was shocked. I was shocked that it that the, the, the front pages of the newspapers, I don't know whether it's even possible for uh, the team supporting us today, if they can get images of those uh, screenshots of those newspaper cuttings. But immediately the newspapers rushing to say that the perpetrator of this horrible crime was a Christian convert. And I thought that simply, I, I felt as if that would never have been said um, if um, it, it would have never been said immediately in this way, this was an Islamic convert. This was an Islamist con convert. They, they would have. They, they always. It would always seem as if those that kind of language is avoided when it comes to Islam. But how quickly and how easily uh, it came for this man uh, to be called a Christian convert, when in fact we've discovered, of course, that it's exactly the opposite. And I think that. I there think to be honest, I'm offended at that. I'm offended at that because decent journalism would know immediately. Anybody who really understands Christianity, what Christianity is, would know that that is that is as far from the truth as the East is from the West. It's wrong, plain wrong. It's brazen, it's shameful, it's sloppy journalism. That's what we saw in that kind of kind of headline. And the truth is that no other group would put up with such a headline. No well, other group um, would put up with such a headline. Well, yeah. And um, listen, if you're watching live on YouTube or Facebook, do post your comments and questions. And what do you think um, about this um, subject? Very topical today. Um, I'm going to go to Beth. Beth, what, what what was your reaction to those news stories on, on Monday when you saw the headlines there? Yeah, I mean, I was shocked too, but what really struck me, it reminded me of how maybe about a decade ago when everyone was trying to lump all the religions together and you still see that happening in society. Um, I think in recent years, people have clocked there might be a difference between Islam and Christianity, but you still have large portions of society and especially the media who like to put us all in the same basket as if we're all the same. And mm -hmm. also that claim you often hear in the last decade or 20 years, where uh, if you look at wars, you look at violence, um, religion is to blame. So a lot of people want to blame religion. And this um, particular case uh, of a Christian convert fed right into that idea that people want to try uphold. Finally, they have an example of someone who went to church for a time, and so now they can label that Christian. See, we also have 
Christian terrorists now. And so you can see that really feeds a narrative for those who want to make all religions look bad, all want to lump us all together as if we're all the same thing. And of course, we're very, very different. And of course, yeah. it also plays into the huge religious illiteracy that we currently have uh, in our society. It's not that uh, people often talk about the sort of secular neutral square as if it really is neutral when we know that the, the secular space is not a neutral space at all and often punishes those, uh, certainly uh, true Christians who cannot uphold a lot of what hard secular atheism pushes in the public square. Unless you conform to this, you will be will be punished. Mm. So that I think that was one of the that's one of the things that it also shows just a deep misunderstanding of what yeah. Christianity really is, just as mm. uh, the, the, the public space also misunderstands the true nature of Islam. Yeah. And so there's a massive education lesson at large um, to be done within the nation in journalism and within a lot of our our you know our cultural bodies those that actually direct the public discourse there's yeah. even there there's a lot of there's a lot of religious illiteracy so that is something that needs to be addressed and of course it would be addressed if the church were truly vibrant and bold and people really understood what what christianity was and that it was speaking effectively to the to to, to the that so, um, culture. So Beth, I can see a comment here on YouTube, Cornerstone City saying Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. Um and obviously a fruit of Christianity is not suicide bombing, hey? Um so so no Christian um would be um expected to do that or should should be doing and that. It's never been suicide bombing or it has never been murder and killing innocent people right from Genesis through to Revelation. It, it God has never called his people to go out and murder. Um, so we just need to be very clear on that. It isn't even just say the last 2,000 years of Christian living and biblical living. It's from the beginning um, thou shalt not murder and that's what we've seen happen today with this young man who uh, or this week this young man who says for at least a time, he was a Christian, um, although it looks like he wasn't at all. So what what about the asylum thing? Because, I mean, he he had been trying to claim asylum. It was only after he had a failed attempt, like a rejection, uh, that he actually went to Liverpool Cathedral and, and, and said he wanted to become a Christian. Um, and what do you think is, you know, how much are churches responsible for checking out these stories and and seeing whether they're real and all of that kind of thing beth you look like you want to comment on this yeah i do i actually talked about this a few years ago uh, uh, back in um when i was in europe i was at a huge uh, conference christian conference in europe and i was quite concerned about one of the church leaders there who um, was talking about a lot of so-called um conversions out of islam uh in their church and i asked them i said how are you really checking that these are true converts and after they are baptized or they're confirmed uh, are they staying with you in the church because that really is the key and mm. after they um are given asylum do they stay with you because that also is a clue into whether yep. um they are truly converted and truly following christ um and sh her response was um she said oh well that's not for me to judge that's for the holy spirit to sort out 
And I thought, hang on a minute, the Holy Spirit gives us a lot of wisdom. He's given us a lot of guidance all, guidance all the way through the scriptures to know how to even um, tackle and grapple with opening our borders or closing our borders. And the Bible is actually, uh, talks a lot about people movements and how that should work. And so for her to just to, to sort of put it onto the Holy Spirit, that's for him to sort out. And I thought, well, as a church and as church leaders, we, are, we have a responsibility both to the Christian community and to the persecuted church and to society as a whole, including Muslims. And so we also have to be wise in how we um, actually judge those that are coming through who are claiming they want to become Christians. Surely we can have wisdom and how we vet that. I mean, we all vet that. If someone wants to become a church leader, there's a process that someone goes through to be able to be sure that this leader really loves Christ and wants to stand for the ways of Christ. At least that's how it should be. Um, the same as those who are coming into the church. We want to open our churches for all people, but when someone wants to commit and then make a public commitment through baptism or through confirmation, then surely we must have a process to help that person um, one, be absolutely true, and, and also protect our communities, um, including cathedrals need to be doing that as well. So I think we have a responsibility to protect our congregations as well as be responsible to society as a whole um, and just make sure that those that are wanting to be um, publicly acknowledged as Christians, that this is a true commitment. And it's easy to do that. I do know some church leaders who won't actually confirm or give baptisms until the person has asylum. But yes, I have known one or two people who have done that. Um, or also what they have done, another church that I knew um, said that they would baptize them. They would um, also or confirm them, but they wouldn't give them a certificate uh, because they did. They knew that so many people were using it for immigration purposes. So they didn't give a certificate. They might have given a Bible, but they didn't give a certificate. So that's another way that some church leaders have also been able to um, check and see those that are really committed or not. And sometimes when they weren't committed, when they really were doing it just for immigration, people would leave and wouldn't get confirmed at that church because the, the, the leader wouldn't give them an actual certificate. So I think there is a sense in which there's a micro issue in terms of really understanding whether the person has truly come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. So that's the hard work of gospel. That's the hard work of discipling and discipleship. There's um, also uh, the, the church institution issue uh, around this, the, the issue of uh, certification. And I mean, one of the big questions I have, and it's almost as an aside in this conversation, but we're talking about the cathedral in Liverpool. Um, it's the Bishop um, of Liverpool, Paul Bays, who is a leading LGBTQI uh, campaigner in the Church of England and in the culture. So he is someone who is in many ways dismantling the truth, the, the absolute gospel truth uh, on, on the one hand. And, he's, and evidently there was this course with certificates at the end uh, that was, was happening um, in and through Liverpool uh, Cathedral. And there's that, that says something about what we're tolerating or what our understanding of the gospel is. I want to make that as almost as a bit of an aside uh, for the point I'm making right now, because the yeah. other thing I want to say within our legal center is this, um, that we know that the immigration the immigration system yeah. heavily dominated uh, by Muslims. Um, so so you, those that are actually 
making the checks and the, the giving the permissions, right. many of the officials are now Muslims. And right. so what we often see is true believers, and what we see at the Christian Legal Center yeah. is true believers not getting not getting through the system. Yeah. And yeah. actually and one of those is Reza Khan, isn't he? Maybe our friends can put the link up on about his case. But yeah, he is going engaging actively in outreach to Muslims in his own community and, and in church every week, translating uh, radiates with enthusiasm for Jesus and the gospel. Well, he talks um, also, Tim, doesn't he, about the, the way in which the interpreters um, within the immigration system yeah. often do not interpret properly for Christians. Yep. So that they will fail. So you've also got that issue. Yeah. Uh, so I mean that that's a sort of endemic yep. problem that we have. And it's about the truth truthfulness of what's going on here. Of course, that's something that we're not surely not going to resolve or solve um on this road table, but it's a really yeah. but there's another aspect to this, Andrea, which is I mean, yeah, we don't know his heart, right? He may right. have actually genuinely become a Christian. Right. You know, certainly he deceived if it was a deception. Um, you know, the people who were with him and discipling him believed that he was moved by Jesus Absolutely. and was praying genuine prayers and all of that kind of thing. So it, it may have been genuine or it may have been a deception. We don't know at this point. But what about this point about Takia, Beth? Can you tell us about that? Because some people are saying, in fact, the head of the armed force, I think I said it could be Takia. Tell us about that, Beth. Yeah, I was quite um, surprised to see someone so high up in authority actually say that. But uh, yes, I mean, Taqiyya has always existed in Islam. Uh, some people say it only really exists in Shia Islam, so that would be your Iranians um, and Syrians, which it sounds like this bomber might have come from that part of the world. Um, but nevertheless, um, it is there is an idea of that in Islamic law. I've got Islamic law books on the uh, bookshelf behind me. And if you read um, in the Islamic law, that which is translated English, if you're an English speaker, um, you will see how there seems to be a... Um, an element of deception in order for either a Muslim to preserve their life or to progress Islam. And that's the idea between, behind Taqiyya. You will have quite a few modernist uh, Muslims or feminist Muslims who don't like that idea at all. And they would prefer to bring in a, a sort of form of interpretation um, called Ijtihad, which is a sort of reinterpreting Islam for the modern times. And that would be, of course, rejecting theological ideas like Taqiyya. Uh, so you have a lot of um, modernist Muslims who would be influencing, say, the British government and advising the British government, who would say there's no such thing as that or we don't use that today. The problem is, is that they're going up against um, their traditions and going up against the texts of Islam. And Islamic law, of course, deeply influences many, many Muslims around the world and the way Muslims live out their lives. And for many Muslims to know how to live out their life, they have to go to Islamic law or Islamic um, experts. And so there is this idea of immigration. There is this idea of, you know, a mass movement of Muslims moving from one country to another and bringing in different elements using takir if it would preserve their life or would preserve Islam or in... So, um, so in under Takiyah, this deception doctrine, Beth, just to be clear about this, it's acceptable for a Muslim to pretend to convert to be a Christian, is it? Well, um, there's an, it doesn't necessarily specifically say what uh, a Muslim can do, but certainly there would be allowance, yes, for a Muslim to lie or to um, mislead people. Um, so that and, and one of those would be to become a Muslim in order to get close to um, either become, become a Christian. Become a, yeah, be given something they need or um, or get close to Christianity. And if if 
it turns out this young man did Takia, which we're not sure. Um, maybe he just had, had, it sounds like he had mental health issues. I just want to be very clear. They, he may well have had mental health issues, but we need to be very careful in society that not every bomber has mental health issues. Some of them are very clear thinkers and they're just being deeply Islamic, according to the Quran and according to the life of Muhammad. So just to make that very clear from the outset. But whether this young man um, was doing taqiyah or not, the fact is, yes, he can um, he can sort of uh, pull the wool over our eyes and, and pretend he's something that he isn't, if that's what he was implementing. And Bertha and Tim, I just want to, say here as someone uh, you are both experts in in islam but this concept of takia is why which i think that most folk don't really have any idea of you're right beth to hear someone um so senior actually speaking that uh into the uh again into the public discourse that um the perpetrator here this young man may well have been acting under takia under that that doctrine um, as it were, is I think something that we really do need people uh, to to understand that this is permissible in in Islam for an Islamic purpose. I mean, I don't know. I, I know. I think that Beth has just unpacked unpack that, but I wonder too if you want to say anything more um, with regard regard to that. Well, I mean, I think you know people don't realise largely that this is an Islamic practice and doctrine, and it's you know it is interesting that the. Um, such a senior member of the um, security services uh, agreed with that point and recognizes it, but it does make it very deceptive uh, to know what, what Muslims are doing and saying if they're open or willing to uh, deceive. They have a, this doctrine of deception called takia, which enables them to deceive people about their motives and about what they're doing. And the other interesting point about this is that Islamic State has actually previously recommended that people pretend to be Christians, wear, wear crosses and things like that um, in order to carry out um, their deeds. Um, so it's kind of been endorsed in that way, at least by um, Islamic State teaching, um, which is um, obviously, you know, um, makes it very difficult to uh, discern um, around this whole kind of thing. But um, but what about, Beth, you know, terrorism and Islam? OK, it's got nothing to do with Islam, has it, Beth? What, what do you say to that? I find that very bizarre when I hear that claim um, when people would, there's a terrorist attack and everyone stands up and say, this has nothing to do with Islam. Um, or people say it's just a tiny, tiny minority of Muslims would support some form of jihad or terrorist act in the name of Islam. The problem is then they are teaching against their own Quran. So you have uh, verses like Surah 812, um, Surah 351, where it actually encourages people not only to do violence, it says to cast terror into the hearts of unbelievers. The idea is you cast terror into the hearts of unbelievers, those who are against Allah, Islam, uh, and Muhammad. Um, so it's 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 clear it's talking about terrorism. It's not even just saying go murder people or go, uh, and that's not just. But it's not just go kill people. It is actually strike terror into the hearts of unbelievers on those who are enemies of Islam. You see that clearly in the Quran multiple times, and you also see so for example in Surah five verse thirty three a very clear edict where Muslims are called upon to fight and kill to maim and crucify those who are enemies of Islam or those who cause mischief in the land. And that would be anyone who would be stand against Muhammad, would stand against Allah, would stand against um, Islam. Hang on a minute, Beth. Hang on a minute. Didn't it say just there that um, 
you shouldn't, uh, you know, if you take one person's life, it's as if you take everybody's life. So in 5.32, yes, that's the most um, misquoted verse in the whole Quran, I think, in the Western world. And it's probably about one of the only verses that a lot of politicians know. And so when there's a terrorist act, um, everyone will come out with that verse because they've been told probably by those who are advising them in Surah 5.32 that it says that if you take a life, it's like you took the life of all. And if you save a life, it's like you saved the life of all. However, that verse says to the Jews or to the people of the book, um, Allah basically has ordained. So to the Jews, to the people of the book, um, uh, or to the Jews specifically, it says that Allah has ordained that if you take a life, it's as if you um, take the life of all. And then the very next verse is, then to go and to um, basically kill those who are uh, cause mischief in the land and who are enemies of Islam. So the next verse is not talking to Jews anymore. It's talking to those who want to protect Islam and defend Islam. So that first verse, Surah 532, is talking to Jews. And this next verse is talking to Muslims to go and fight and maim anyone who um, uh, who is an enemy of Islam. So well, yeah, I think we need to make sure we're reading those verses together. Well, there's, so there's that. So it's understanding actually how the verses are quoted and how it's defended again, because what you've got is religious illiteracy. Uh, people hear things. What you've got continually um, stated in the in the national noise in the or in the in the international Western noise is um, Islam is a religion of peace. So there's a a fear and a horror so you can't say um islam uh is that you can't say islamic terrorism this is this is the whole point about you know they went straight to christian a christian terrorist but we can't really put islam islamic and terrorism in the same sentence certainly on the not not on the front page of a newspaper i'm not saying it doesn't happen at all because because of course it 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 it, it, it does but it's just people are much more fearful about doing that yeah. And then you've got the defense um, of, you've got the political defense of, of Islam with the kind of misquoting of the verses as Beth has just outlined. But then you've got, but what about the Crusades? And what about the Old Testament, Tim? The other point is, what about the Old Testament? You say this, this is just Muslims corrupting corrupting mm -hmm. the quran this is because most muslims are, are very and of course we you know we love our we we want to really yep. love our muslim neighbor we absolutely want to love our muslim neighbors and friends but they they will say the truth is that it, there's a few crazy terrorist christians and a few crazy terrorist muslims and christians defend that they, they the christians defend their actions look at what look at what happened in the old testament Right. So, well, we should talk about that. But I see that my friends have posted my article, Is Islam a Religion of Peace, um, up in the comments there. If you're if you're listening, do Google that. It covers all of these verses and all of these um, points in some more detail than we can cover in a conversation. But, um, Beth, I'm going to go to you on the Old Testament. What do you say when people say the Old Testament justifies terrorism? Yeah. I, I, let me, I will address the Old Testament very quickly. Anyone who says Islam is a religion of peace, two books to go to, go to the biography of Muhammad, 
Um, and you can get this anyway. Get on the internet. Life of Muhammad by Alfred Yom. It's a bit of a chore to get through, but it definitely shows that Muhammad was not a peaceful man. And the Quran says that if you are a Muslim, that um, obedient Muslims are to obey Muhammad and Allah. And then go to the Quran where there's over 150 verses that are direct edicts from Allah telling Muslims to kill in the name of Islam. Some might be for an, an older context, but a lot of them are just direct edicts even for today. I haven't got time to unpack that, but there. That's basically the answer to that. When anyone says Islam's a religion of peace, go to the biography. Yeah, your answer is read the text. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, go to the text. Go to the text. Um, looking at the Crusades and also the Old Testament, um, we teach a lot about this on our course um, on the One Truth Project. We have a course on Islam, a biblical response to Islam. One of the big um, topics we tackle is the Old Testament and its Crusades and church history. Uh, because, of course, it was in church history where Islam... Uh, some Middle Ages where Islam really came to power and was engaging with, Muslim, uh, with Christians um, all the way through. And what a lot of people forget about the Crusades, and I'm not excusing everything that happened in the Crusades. Crusades was war. War is a horrific thing. But we need to reclaim Crusades back from the very secular vision that we've been given in the last sort of few decades um, from the academic uh from education and so on, who have um, interpreted the Crusades in such a negative light um, and have ennobled the, the Muslims that they were fighting against as if the Muslims are noble and the sultans were noble and they were sophisticated and we got lots of our arts and sciences and um, our architecture from Islam and so on. And um, then we, and then they compare that to the medieval Christianity as if, as if it was cruel and, and terrible. Well, we need to reclaim, first of all, church history back to its rightful place and the Crusades. The Crusades were um, a pushback after 400 years of Islamic invasions, um, Muslim forces coming in, primarily, first of all, from Arabia through North Africa, um, destroying the church in North Africa, taking the women and children as sex slaves and the men as warriors. Those same warriors were brought into southern Spain to conquer southern Spain. You see the, the same happening going as far over as to China. And so you have the Islamic forces, usually slaves, coming in and are conquering, trying to conquer parts of Christian Europe. And so you have the beginning of what is called the Reconquista, and this happened for 400 years of um, European Christians trying to protect their families, sometimes their villages, sometimes their towns, and sometimes they were leaders, trying to protect their communities, their churches, and so on. Churches were destroyed, and then that architecture and those churches were then used to uh, rebuild or build beautiful mosques and beautiful forts like the Fort of Cordoba in Spain. And so you had this movement of Muslims continually, brutally, you need to read um, and, um, Moreira's book on the myth of the Andalusian paradise, one yeah. of the best books I've ever written on the topic. And it really exposes the cruelty of the Muslim leaders uh, right across um, Islamic yeah. Spain and going into France and what it did to the Christians and even to the pagans and so on. Um, and why you have the Reconquista pushing back, pushing back, trying to protect their lands, finally leading to the Crusades. And what else is interesting, in those Crusades, um, especially the former Crusades that were brought about by the popes and also the leaders of the lands, those Crusades, um, when they conquered some of the areas that had been taken primarily by Muslim invaders, 
when the, the Crusaders um, set up their citadel kingdoms um, in the Holy Land, different parts of the world, you actually have both Jews, Christians, and Muslims running to those citadel kingdoms for protection. Now, nobody talks about these things. Why would Muslims run to Christian kingdoms for protection? Yeah. So we need to look at the Crusades in a very different light to what we've been taught. We're not excusing yeah. atrocities done on both sides. But we need to be a little bit more intelligent and look at the Crusades that they were pushing back against the 400 years of invasions um, of right through Africa, Europe and parts of the Holy Land. Yeah. And so, so, Beth, um, um, Rachel Elizabeth on Facebook says, please, can you share details of the books mentioned and where to find the One Truth Project? So that's uh, the myth of Andalusian paradise, isn't it? It's a very good book. Actually. Is it by again? Oh, it's a Spanish guy, isn't it? Um, yes, uh, he knows fluent Spanish, Arabic, um, French. So he's reading the original eyewitness testimonies um, from, from what most of us can't read because we don't know the languages. So he's then brought it all into English and translated it into English for us to be able to read. And it's eyewitness accounts, both Muslim and yeah. Christian. That and how do people used. get onto your course, Beth? One, so two. they can go to um, www.onetruthproject.org. And if you look at online courses and they look at the course on Islam, a biblical response to Islam, that's our yeah. flagship course that um, people can do. Yeah. We're also going to do short versions and we're developing short courses on different topics uh, like the Crusades and so on. Brilliant. And um, but we, what you haven't addressed still is the Old Testament. Old Testament. Right? Same thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, Old Testament. So um, it's I love uh, the book of Samuel. In the book of Samuel, you'll have a, there's a situation there where Jesus is the king and Jesus has been guiding the people when they came out of Egypt, out of slavery, into freedom. And he's been guiding the people um, to um, to a land of, of freedom and life and so on. And um, you have Jesus has always been king. And then suddenly in Samuel, you have the people. They do not want um, Jesus to be king anymore. They say we want a human king. And that's when you have Saul and the beginning of human kings and in some sense, human politics starts in the book of Samuel. Um, and so you have then um, human kings put in to um, replace Jesus, and, they, and Jesus warns the people, you will have taxes, you will have all sorts of issues that will happen to you because you're choosing human kings over above the way of Christ. So Christ yeah. has always been but, leading But you need to go before that, because what about what happened to the judges, right? Yes, and so the, yes, but Christ has always been leading and he is called the warrior of heaven. He does bring judgment and justice on all peoples. And what's interesting, he will also judge his own people. So when the, the people who were called his people had strayed and become horrific in their behavior, they too were judged, which is very, very different to Islam. So you do have moments of judgment in the Old Testament. What people tend to do is they'll pick up one verse here and there as if that describes the whole of the Bible, not realizing there's hundreds of years sometimes between the wars that happen in the Old Testament. And you'll see that God's morality is equal for all people. He doesn't um, say, well, for my people, you can get away and do bad stuff. Yeah, you can go kill, but over there, let's go hurt them. No, he holds all people to the same level of morality. Yeah which is very, he's consistent. You don't see that with Islam at all. And also you see the reason for some of the judgment in the Old Testament is when murder, when acts like terrorism, when absolute um, debauchery and abuse of children and women and so on have become so out of control, God's like, right, enough's enough. 
much like we do today through our our justice systems today. Enough's enough. Yeah. So if we and all the, that, um, all the commands of the balance are time specific, aren't they? They're for this particular situation, this particular time, and they've never been used by Jews or Christians ever since to justify violence going forward in the name of Christianity or Islam in the same kind of way. Um, yeah. So whereas in in uh, the Quran, they're open ended, aren't they? The, um, the, the ongoing. It's ongoing. Yes. Yeah. And we're not called. Jesus says um, though, to turn, you know, to turn away from the sword and we're not called to use the sword. Um, Muslims today are called to use the sword. Well, there's an obvious contrast between Jesus and Muhammad in that, isn't there? Because yeah. Muhammad did yeah. lead wars and did fight and did kill people. And, and, and Jesus. Jesus sacrificed himself. I mean, what, yeah. what a story and what a contrast that he would shed his own blood for our sin to pay the penalty yeah. that we deserved. Yeah. And God the Father sent his son, his beloved son, uh, to pay that penalty. Yeah. And for Jesus himself, so pure, not wanting, actually saying, understanding what, what the cost would be. Yeah. And pleading even at one point, because he knew where he would have to go, um take take this cup from me but not not my will but yours O lord and then he submitted himself willingly uh, yeah. to that beautiful sacrifice well that is that is such a contrast that his you know and again you know a, 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 it was a false a false trial put to death by the the the, the religious men and, yeah. and the the legal system to put to get to put to death by the 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 leaders of the age the system with a yep. bay mob, you know, yep. so that is uh, such a contrast. So, so I just want to move on to um, the question of lone wolves, though, um, Beth, because, you know, it, it, in case people listening didn't realise, it has now been revealed that this chap um, in Liverpool um, was attending mosque all day, every day during Ramadan and more recently as well. So, you know, he's, you know, and people say he's a lone wolf, but there's obviously influence there, isn't there, Beth? There's obviously influence and people he's finding teaching from somewhere. And it seems like it must have been from the mosque that he attended that is radicalizing him in this way, is it not, Beth? How do you view it? The term lone wolf has been used to um, distract people away from the real problem, as you said, um, Tim. Um, what is empowering lone wolves? Well, their text, <laughs> the life of Muhammad and the Quran, that's what's empowering lone wolves. Um, if you look at one of the stories, actually in the biography of Muhammad, you have a story where um, you have a mother She's um, with her child, she's feeding her child, and um, this lone wolf goes out and he kills her in front of her children. It's a brutal story it's in the life of Muhammad. And um, he comes back to Muhammad and he's like, oh, should I tell Muhammad what I've done? And he does. Muhammad is very pleased with what he's done and says that this kind of man is a good Muslim. Now, he was, in a sense, a lone wolf. Um, because he was um, in a, watched what his prophet had been doing according to the Islamic text, and he felt that that was the right thing to preserve the honor of Muhammad. This mother had just been writing poetic verse against Muhammad and his men because they had killed a lot of her relatives. So she mm -hmm. uh, got killed because of it. Now that's mm -hmm. a lone wolf. So mm -hmm. well, we need to be very careful we're not distracted from the real cause that's empowering mm -hmm. such lone wolves to do what they do because they yes, are- um, The other thing, Beth, is, you know, I, I don't know if you read my review of Ed Hussein's book, um, Among the Mosques, but yeah, he wrote, he went and visited the mosques up and down the country, Bradford, Birmingham, you know, um, Dewsbury, London, Manchester. Every mosque he found extremist teaching, every mosque. And literature that is banned in Saudi Arabia is available in the mosques in this country. You know, so it's not hard for people to go and find 
and and become radical and find radical teaching uh, here in the mosques in this country. That's sort of the point, isn't it, really? And you also have the contagion principle, don't you? So uh, if um, if the lone if, if the lone wolf um, is actually doing that, which um, promotes Islam and is in line with the teaching of Islam for the good of Islam, which is what these actions are seen as according mm. to the according to the teaching and and then that that then that is known so so when other similar acts get get uh, get done well that that's all part of a part of a continuum really it's not because of because of the teaching that's in 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 the mosques yeah yeah so beth what what can we do about all this what 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 do you think we need to do as as the church um, in response to these kind of things. Yeah, well, now we've had two Islamic terrorist attacks in the last month. Um, one was an MP brutally murdered in a church in his own constituency, and the other was um, this this latest suicide bombing in Liverpool. Terrorism threat level has been raised. What do you think we should do, Beth? Yeah, you know, for the sake of the church and for the sake of society, including refugees who have genuinely come here for sanctuary, which we support, for them as well and for the church, the church has to have a very clear um, response and needs to become that, in some sense, the fortress it used to be, the, 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 the citadel that people would run to and go to and be truly transformed. Um, we can't point fingers at those that have had Muslim friends or Muslim uh, come to their, Muslims come to their congregation either pretend to be Muslims and then not actually go the whole way um, as following Christ. We can't necessarily point the fingers at um, that because we've all had friends. I've had Muslim friends who were coming really close to Christ and then decided to walk away from him. And then, of course, the consequences of that can be anything. So, But what we do is the church. The church needs to have a, a response and the church needs to start being a lot more um, seen it needs to have a very clear message. When I say the church, I'm talking about, let's talk about every denomination here. We need to really clearly preach Christ. And those that are a part of us, our congregations, are showing Christ. And we need to be wise in how we um, work with and welcome everyone in. But let's be what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place where everyone is welcome, but they clearly see Christ, not a compromise, not a watered-down faith. And that's good, isn't it? I mean, that's really it. We, we have to have the confidence in the gospel to change and transform the lives of those that come into it. So we believe that Jesus Christ uh, can rescue, change, and transform every Muslim, every immigrant that comes into this country. We believe that. We ought not to have policies in place whereby in holding hotels, in hold, holding asylum centres, we are giving to those that are coming in Qurans and prayer mats. Rather, we should be giving them the Bible. That's the kind of thing we need to have confidence in, that if we give the Bible to those people that are coming in, that they will read it and they will be transformed by the living word of God. Do we have that confidence? We need to love those that are enslaved to what is a, a, a false religion, to what is a, against God's truth. We need to love them so much to have the, to have the courage to commit to them uh, for the sake of the gospel. Then, we, then I pray that we will see change. We need to have hearts that are full of love for the Muslims, but we also need to understand what Islam is and where it will drive 
those that live amongst us, those that are going to the mosques, what we need to understand mm. the teaching mm. that's happening in the mosques. Well, um, but um, Beth, you and I have written a book on this very subject to help the church, haven't we? Yes. Um, yes. Called Questions to Ask Your Muslim Friends, which is exactly uh, trying to empower Christians to engage with Muslims um, on the questions of faith um, and uh, really sort of starting very simple questions like, um, how do you become a Muslim and things like that, and moving on to comparing Jesus and Muhammad, which is always a good strategy in talking with Muslims, and then going into some more depth about the Quran and, and issues and, and teachings you can challenge in the Quran and stuff. We hope to bring that out early next year. Um, so watch this space for that. But I think that a big thing is the church needs to be equipped to confidently challenge Islam and confidently... Let's face it, Tim, um, government and society hasn't found a solution and it can't. It has no response to a religion like Islam, but only uniquely can Christ and, and those who are truly Christians have an actual response to Islam because we believe in passionately following the Lord Jesus. We understand in some sense the psyche of a terrorist in that they passionately follow Muhammad and their Quran. We get that as Christians. So let's bring them yeah. home to Jesus, who teaches them not to kill and maim others, but to love others. And I, to want to know, I want to ask Beth, are we as passionate as them? I mean, we are we really. Are we really in this nation? No. You know, where are we? if we were as passionate, we would be out on the streets proclaiming Jesus Christ as the answer in this broken world. If ever you could see right now, right now in our nation, a nation that is hurting and lost, and and the and the rise of radical Islam amongst um, our the Islam, the Muslim demographic in our nation, uh, that is a moment when we should, well, be absolutely passionate, believing that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that can change and transform. Yeah. And we need, we, I, I look at them and know, as you've just said, Beth, that only Jesus is the answer to this. Yeah. But it's as if we, as a collective people, have lost our confidence mm -hmm. in the power of the gospel. And I think we need to find it. <laughs> we need to find it fast. Yeah. Yes, we do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I think that's been a really great discussion. Thank you so much for joining us, Beth, um, in particular, you, and down there as well. I hope you found that helpful. And uh, and do follow up on the various links and books and resources that we've pointed to uh, there. And, um, and, and follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and uh, sign up for emails as well. And we'll look forward to... Uh, talking again next week. Thank you very much. Thank you.